Worldview Discussions, Lesson 27. Here we go, people. Hey, I learned something today. I learned that if you flip a canoe over, that it will uh, function as a hat. Functions as a hat. Do you guys want to know why? Because then it's uh, capsized. <laughs> yes, capsized. Lori Granite, shout, shout out. That's from Lori Granite. Thank you, Lori. That was a good one. I like that one. Lesson 27, we, last week, or last time, it might have been just a few minutes ago for some of you who are maybe in binge mode, uh, catching up on some of these, we looked at some bold claims for Jesus's resurrection. And the goal here is to provide some evidence for someone to think about. Um, and maybe by the time we're done presenting some of these ideas, we can come to a conclusion that it might not be evidence that's the issue here. It could actually be their worldview beliefs that's getting in the way. So part two, we're diving in here. And this time, I want to think about the beliefs that people had in the first century and compare them with the beliefs of the disciples. Okay. And we'll, we'll see that the disciples belief specifically in the afterlife as it relates to Jesus was highly unusual. It was not the typical Jewish belief of the first century or for that matter, a Greco-Roman belief. So the question is going to be, where did they get this belief from? So just a couple comments about beliefs. Maybe you guys have had this experience. I know I have that beliefs actually take time to develop and to change. I'm curious, are there any beliefs about the Bible, God, theology, whatever, um, that have changed for you in the last 15, 20 years? And maybe you can actually think of a couple areas where, yeah, I think uh, maybe I'm a little different in how I think about this or that. I'm not talking about core doctrines like who Jesus was, the Trinity, but I'm talking about maybe how we understand certain passages or even certain theologies as well. I know for me personally, and guys, I I get that like I, I swim in this world constantly all the time. Uh, some of you know that all too well in the teacher's lounge. Uh, and you have to, you know, deal with sometimes the, the uh, thought processes going on in my head. And you're so gracious. You're so gracious. Shout out to Cheryl Eklund, especially. <laughs> but um, I know for me, just thinking about my view of certain things, it's really been explained in some of these podcasts, like how I look at the Old Testament law, how I look at narratives in the Old Testament, um, how the Gospels relate to the Old Testament, um, 
how I look at the book of Revelation and things regarding eschatology and the end times. Um, I know for over the last 20, 25 years, some of these ideas have changed uh, for me. Even the idea of election is something that's really challenging me over the last couple years. So point being, beliefs take time to change. It's typically not an overnight uh, event, right? Okay, so hold on to that idea. And let's look at first Greco-Roman afterlife beliefs. Then I want to look at Jewish afterlife beliefs in the first century. And then we'll look, we'll look at the disciples. And we'll see that their beliefs just don't seem to match. So let's start with Greco-Roman beliefs of the afterlife. Quite simply, the beliefs in the afterlife, if you were to read uh, Homer, you know, so we're a couple hundred years before Jesus here, you're going to read about um, a, a dire, uh, bodiless existence that is depressing and uh, definitely a one-way ticket. Um, you'll also get a sense from Plato of this disembodied kind of existence. Now, Plato does have a little bit more of a positive twist on it for those who have sought wisdom, that there's some kind of blissful experience that they're involved in. But uh, here I'll quote Keller. In Greco-Roman thinking, the soul or the spirit was good, and the physical and the material world was weak, corrupt, and defiling. To them, the physical, by definition, was always falling apart, and therefore salvation was conceived as liberation from the body. Plato, the philosopher, not the, you know, the, the toy but Plato, the philosopher, taught that death freed you from your body. Think of Acts 17, when Paul's in Athens, and it says in verse 32 that when he spoke about the resurrection, specifically of Jesus, it says that some mocked him. The idea of keeping your body after you died was ludicrous to them. Plato said in his work called Phaedo, if we are ever to have pure knowledge, we must escape from the body and observe things in themselves with the soul by itself. So the goal within the Greco-Roman world was when you die, you get rid of your body and hopefully you have some kind of blissful, disembodied experience. Now, if you start thinking about that a little bit, I gotta tell you, I kinda start feel like I'm, I'm hearing the, the common conception within Christianity about heaven. Anybody else thinking that? So 
Let me read a quote from N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. Here, Wright says, most Western Christians, and most Western non-Christians for that matter, in fact suppose that Christianity was committed to at least a soft version of Plato's position. A good many Christian hymns and poems wander off unthinkingly in the direction of Gnosticism, which was this philosophy um, in the first century that you want to get rid of your body, the body's bad. The just passing through spirituality, as in the spiritual world, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Though it has come, though it, sorry, though it has some affinities with classical Christianity, encourages precisely a Gnostic attitude. The created world is at best irrelevant, at worst a dark, evil, gloomy place. And we immortal souls who existed originally in a different sphere are looking forward to returning to it as soon as we are allowed to. A massive assumption has been made in Western Christianity that the purpose of being a Christian is simply, or at least mainly, to go to heaven when you die. And texts that don't say that, but that mention heaven, are read as if they did say it. And texts that say the opposite, like Romans 8, 18-25, and Revelation 21-22, are simply screened out as if they didn't exist. Guys, here, I think N.T. Wright is saying that the philosopher Plato is still messing with us. Think about this. 200 years before even Jesus was born, Plato's writing about this stuff. And 2,000 years later, it seems like we're using Plato's philosophy to interpret passages in the Bible that talk about heaven. So that's interesting to me, and I'm kind of going on a side note here, but that I think is something that we need to uh, pause and think about. And, and I'm going to circle back around to this in two more lessons as we think about the significance of Jesus's bodily resurrection. So just maybe put a little bookmark here, a mental bookmark, that we'll come back to this idea in a little bit. So big idea has been that if you were someone in the Greco-Roman world and you heard that Jesus had been bodily raised from the dead, it would have been something very difficult for you to accept. And it seems like the disciples wouldn't have gotten the idea from the Greco-Roman world. So what about the Jewish concept of the afterlife in the first century? It does seem like there's been some kind of development within Jewish thoughts of the afterlife from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's a fair amount of consensus within biblical scholarship that in the Old Testament, there, there was the belief that when you died, you went to Sheol, the place of the dead, and that you remained there. Now, there are some scholars that argue that that wasn't the belief, that there was a hope, a resurrection hope uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and that might be true. 
it does seem there's consensus among a lot of scholars that says there's there was a development or a change in the belief of the afterlife around the time of the exile. And so here you get in Daniel chapter 12, a passage that seems to speak of some kind of resurrection from the dead. So by the time of Jesus, there was a belief among many Jews at that time that there would be a general bodily resurrection of God's people at the end of history. Think about what Martha says to Jesus in John 11, verse 24. Remember, her brother Lazarus has just died, and she's talking to Jesus, and she's so sad. And as Jesus talks about being the resurrection and the life, um, he asks her, do you believe you'll see your brother again? Martha's response is, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So here Martha is giving an illustration of what was a common Jewish belief at that time, that there would be a general resurrection of God's people at the end of history. That's important. Keller writes this, the idea of an individual being resurrected in the middle of history, while the rest of the world continued on burdened by sickness, decay, and death, was inconceivable. So that's really interesting, isn't it? That Jews in the first century would just have had just as much difficulty in believing in Jesus's bodily resurrection as Greco-Roman citizens would have as well. Because they would look around and say, uh, Israel has not been restored um, as a nation and freed. God's presence hasn't come to the temple. Uh, the king, the Messiah, king is not reigning on his throne. Uh, sickness and death have not been defeated. So all these things in the prophets that they connected with God's kingdom returning, that the world being restored hadn't happened when Jesus died on the cross. And so this is an unusual, unusual thing. So the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection would not have come from um, the, the Jewish ideology of that time. I think you could say it came from Scripture, but it's not how they were seeing Scripture. It was not the, the common belief of that time. So what do we get? We get the disciples believing that one man had been resurrected in the middle of history, and this was the beginning of God's new creation. Keller writes, the first century Christians had a resurrection-centered view of reality. I love that line. They believed that the future resurrection had already begun in Jesus. I want to make a couple observations about the strangeness of the disciples' belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And this will be our last piece of evidence to highlight. First off, <clears throat> there was a sense at which their worldview had changed overnight. It was instant. This future resurrection life had come with Jesus and it led to a new way uh, for them to live. Think about Peter. 
In Mark 14, Peter is asked by a servant girl, uh, don't you follow Jesus? Don't you know Jesus? And not a mere 40 days later, Peter, who was scared to confess his allegiance to Jesus to a servant girl, is now 40 days later in Acts chapter 2 in front of thousands and he is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. He's saying that they murdered Jesus. And he's saying this was God's plan from the very beginning. And he's calling them to repent and believe. I mean, what has gotten into Peter, right? I mean, has he just been drinking a lot of Red Bulls or what? And it seems to me that the the, the instant... Uh, change in their worldview begs the question, how did that work? What best explains that? But what's interesting is it's a Jewish conviction still. They very much believed that they're not leaving the beliefs of Judaism, uh, that the story of Jesus fulfills the story of Israel. Matthew 1 starts with Jesus being called the son of Abraham and the son of David. So the disciples very much believed this wasn't a new religion. It was a fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Of course, we have to resolve the issue of Paul, who was this enemy of the, the Jesus Messiah movement, and he became the greatest missionary and people were trying to process, and it's written in, in Acts, isn't it, guys? What do we do with Paul? And they're trying to process this themselves. So it seems like the Apostle Paul's life is evidence for us. The strangeness of his beliefs have changed, and uh, we need to make an account for that. Also, think about this. What is going on with a, a group of Jews in the first century worshiping a man as their God. I mean, just think about that. For thousands of years, you've got Jews who believe that there is one God, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you get something like, for example, the Apostle Paul writing in first. Corinthians chapter 8, yet, <clears throat> this is verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom all things exist. You see what he did? He put Jesus on par with God, the one God, and no doubt Paul's thinking about Deuteronomy 6 as he quotes this. And he's saying that that God from whom all things exist, yeah, that's Jesus. When Timothy sees Jesus in John chapter 20, and he touches his scars, he says, my Lord and my God. When the disciples saw Jesus in Matthew 28 resurrected, they worshiped him. What is going on with Jews worshiping a man as their God? Right? That's a strange Jewish belief. What, what best explains that? One final thing to, to acknowledge. Keller, in his book, he quotes Pascal, 
who says, I believe the testimony of those that get their throats cut. Let's be careful with this. <clears throat> Just because one dies for something doesn't mean that something they're dying for is true. But it seems to logically mean they're convinced that it's true. All the disciples died for their faith, except for John, history records. And so we're begged to, to ask the question, why are they dying for their faith? Clement, a uh, very, very early church father in his letter to the Corinthians, this is dated around uh, 90 AD, he says, let us take the noble examples of our own generation through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most just pillars of the church were persecuted and came even unto death. Peter, through unjust envy, endured not one or two, but many labors, and at last, having delivered his testimony, departed unto the place of glory due to him. Why are these people dying for this belief? Why are they so convinced? So we've thought about some evidence in this lesson regarding the unusual beliefs of the disciples. Where did they get this idea from? It seems highly unlikely that they made it up. And so one could, I think, argue that the resurrection makes the best um, um, argument and, and provides the best explanation for the disciples' unusual belief. One final thought to say, people today tend to shortcut this investigation because of their beliefs. They might say miracles are, are impossible. And so Jesus coming back from the dead is not an option. But I wonder if all the evidence is pointing that way, shouldn't one consider maybe changing their worldview belief about miracles instead of continuing in their belief that Jesus didn't rise from the dead?